Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a big expanse, but it's pockmarked. It's a sort of a moonscape, a kind of a lunar landscape. Craters all over the place, as far as the eye can see. In this week's podcast, we're setting foot on a lunar landscape with over 400 vertical shafts descending deep underground, following the trail of a precious raw material. Sophisticated mining on an industrial scale, where our ancient ancestors worked in harmony with the world, always giving back for what they took. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last podcast, we walked with the dead in Ireland's Boyne Valley. Where are we now? The next stop on my travels throws up so many questions. Nestled near the Norfolk-Suffolk border... It's a place that still has a thing or two to teach us today. The incredible Grimes Graves. Grimes Graves is one of those good names. It, you know, it, it begs the question, how does a place come by such a name? Uh, it, it's, it's quite romantically, quite imaginatively translated from the Anglo-Saxon. The name means something like the mines or the holes dug by the hooded man. In Anglo-Saxon cosmology, folklore, ideas of gods, uh, there was a, a god called Grim or Grime, and he was a hood. He wore a hood. You couldn't see his face, and f- and for some reason, uh, those Anglo-Saxons, when they encountered this bizarre patch of landscape, they called it Grime's graves, the mines dug by the hooded man, uh, and it, it, it's impressive in its own right that they realised and understood what they were looking at. And you would wonder what on earth had made it. Uh, But in fact, those Anglo-Saxons, when they called it Grimes Graves, they were quite right because they they understood one way or another that it's all that remains of um, mine shafts uh, that had been sunk down through the topsoil into the chalk, because this is a chalk landscape, and then great mine shafts 30 feet wide, 40 feet deep, big scale, 
had been dug meticulously with stone tools and and pickaxes made of reindeer antler. It was all they had, no metal tools. Those miners had dug deep down into the chalk and what they were looking for was flint. Flint forms within chalk and those uh, Neolithic farmers uh, 5,000 years ago had dropped mine shafts into the chalk to get deep down where they could find the flint that they wanted to make into tools, axes, knives, anything with a sharp edge they had to make from flint because they didn't have metal. They were very industrial about it. They would drop a shaft, uh, exhaust the flint that was available. They would uh, get down to where the flint was and then follow it in galleries and chambers off in every direction till they had got all the flint out and up to the surface. And then they would carefully backfill each mine shaft. So they didn't, they didn't leave them open. When they had exhausted the resource deep underground, they put the chalk rubble back in, which would have stopped the risk of any subsidence, stopped the risk of anybody or any animals falling into these shafts. And by the time the Anglo-Saxons came along, thousands of years later, all that was left were these craters, these pockmarks all over the place that were the remains of the Neolithic miners four, maybe 5,000 years ago. Wow. So they put two and two together and worked out what it was. The Anglo-Saxons, however they, however they did it, they knew what they were looking at. In, in as much as they knew that it was the tops of shafts, the tops of holes, because their, their name means they just thought that it was their god that had dug the holes. But they knew that they were looking at, at uh, collapsed and slumped tops to deep holes underground. Digging mine shafts 10 to 12 metres deep is a pretty major operation, isn't it? Absolutely. What it tells you right away is that people are coming together four or five thousand years ago and acting collectively. This is not something that one family or one individual could have undertaken on his own or on their own. Not even a family. You're talking about scores of people, uh, presumably at times of the year, uh, maybe while they were waiting for the crops to ripen. Uh, and they had some time, they would they would gather. Lots of different communities would come together at Grimes Graves and they would work to dig the shafts. Once the shafts were at a certain depth, they would have to have installed um, wooden scaffolding to stop them from, you know, collapsing in on themselves. And some of the some of the sha- some of the chambers that, that we find are so small they must have been being exploited by children. So it wasn't just adults, children who had been involved in the mining as well. But for everyone that worked underground, there must have been a whole support team above. cooking food, uh, making the tools and equipment that the people needed underground. They made a great deal of use of uh, pickaxes that are red deer antlers. If you you picture what an antler looks like when it comes off the animal's head, uh, there's the bit where it joins onto the crown of the beast, and then there are sharp tangs that that, that stick out. Well, if you break break away all all but one of those tines, you've got a pickaxe. And the archaeologists excavating at Grimes Graves have found them underground. And they were using so many that it, it suggests that the people may actually have had captive herds of red deer in, in enclosures. They must have kept them so that they had ready access to this raw material. Or, or in any event, they had found some means by which they could get access to a, a great volume of this raw material itself that they needed uh, for the for the purposes of digging and mining underground. So, altogether, you're talking about a very organised, semi-industrial, really, 
exercise in in going after this very valuable resource. And the flint that they were bringing up, they wouldn't just have been, it would have been on such a scale, uh, they wouldn't just have been using it themselves. You know, the flint would have come up in rough pieces uh, and then craftspeople, uh, men and women, would have would have worked them into rough outs of axes and other uh, other bits of equipment. And no doubt it was traded and circulated far and wide out into the wider British Isles. People would have known all over the place that Grimes Graves, this part of the country, was a good source of flint. So things that started out in, in Grimes Graves would have ended up as tools all over the country. So it's, it speaks of a sophisticated level of organisation, trading links, people working together, understanding what they were doing, being very technical about it, safety conscious. Uh, it's a very sophisticated operation. Because the mine shafts are about 12 metres deep, you couldn't have one ladder all the way. You'd have to go down in steps, wouldn't you? Yeah, so they would have had to have uh, revetted it with some kind of scaffolding because there would have been a severe danger of the whole thing collapsing while people were underground. And then when they were underground and, and moving out horizontally, opening up chambers and galleries to get to follow the flint, they must have been using you know, pit props and and not just entirely relying on the integrity of the chalk itself. You know, they would have been keeping themselves safe while they were uh, underground. Sounds like a very sophisticated mining operation then. Oh, completely. Um, it's, it's also, it's even more than that. The reason why there's a, a sort of spine-tingling excitement about going to somewhere like Grimes Graves uh, it's because the, the archaeologists, having excavated some of these uh, shafts, and as visitors, you can go and you can go down, climb down big, big metal ladders, clang, 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 down into the dark, and you can see, you can be in the space that was created four or five thousand years ago by those farmers. Oh, yeah. And without a word of a lie, there are still antler picks leaning casually against the walls of the chambers left precisely where they were set aside by the miners when they finished. And they, it's like they put the pick against the wall and walked away from it, and the archaeologists in some cases haven't moved them. They just found them and left them exactly where they are. And I defy anyone uh, to, 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 to stand in the presence of that and know that no one has touched it since the miner who set it aside. And, and, not, and not feel the hairs go up on the back of your neck. It's one of those locations in the landscape where the millennia, the thousands of years separating us from the event, they, they, they seem almost magically to dissolve away when you're in the presence of the set-aside tools and there's nothing separating you from yourself and those people but time. You would swear that you could reach out and touch the Neolithic world. And it's better even than that because the... They weren't just taking the flint out and backfilling and walking away. They weren't just uh, taking what they needed and, and forgetting about it. And, and we know this because before they backfilled the shaft, before they filled it in again, it would seem that the, the miners went back down one last time and they would sometimes create little al alcoves or altars in the chalk. And, and there they would leave uh, finished stone tools. Why would you do that? Why would you take a beautifully finished axe and leave it underground, never to be touched? Uh, animal bone, uh, human bone, the, the 
the, the remains of some of their own kind they put back down. Sometimes there's cooked food offerings of some kind. And when you, when you try to interpret that, it, it's at least suggestive of the idea that having taken from the world, these people were sophisticated enough to think that they had run up a debt and they should give something back. We can't just take. It's like, it's the same mindset. They had learned that by, by keeping back some seeds, they couldn't just harvest a crop and eat it all. You had to keep some and put some of the seed back in the ground and that's your next harvest. It's a cyclical process. You take, you give back, and the world gives again. And the, the miners may have applied some of the same thinking. They may have thought that the, the flint was, a, was something that was growing in the world. Uh, but rather than a food, it was something that they needed for making tools. And when they had taken out a certain amount, they had to give something back to, to make sure that, the, that Mother Earth would keep on giving them flint. Now that's, I mean, the, the, the industrial scale extraction of the raw material is sophisticated enough. But then think about the fact that you've got people who are thinking those kind of thoughts. That this, this, this life of ours, this existence here on this earth, it can't all just be about taking and using. We have to pay back, pay something back. Now, we're only just relearning that now, to some extent, in the 21st century. All our rapacious hollowing out of the world taking fossil fuels, taking every mineral, taking every element, taking, taking, taking. It's only now, in the 21st century, that some of us are thinking, well, this can't go on. There has to be give as well as take. You know, the Romans, in, in speaking in Latin, they had quid pro quo, which means this for that. I'll give you this, and, I'll, and you give me that. Exchange. Well, way before the Romans, those Neolithic farmers seem to have been thinking, quid pro quo, I've got my axe heads, so we give back some of our own ancestors, some of our own people, or we cook a meal and we put it down there, or we take a finished axe and we give it back, and in this way we will keep ourselves in the black instead of just always being in the red. What do we know about the raw material they were after, the flint itself? I'm very interested in the Stone Age, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in that part of the prehistoric uh, where people were using stone tools. And flint, which is basically what Grimes Graves is all about, flint is mysterious stuff. Science, we don't fully, completely understand what it is. And we can be certain sure that the miners four or five thousand years ago almost certainly didn't fully understand what it is. If you've never, if you've never encountered a nodule of flint, uh, when you find, sometimes on a beach, you know, down in the south, down in Norfolk, down in the, in this, in the south east where the chalk is, or on the south coast, you sometimes find a nodule of flint on the beach. And on the outside, it, it's, um, it, it's a chalky covering. It, it can look like just like any other pebble, really. Just a dull, chalky coating on the outside, but that's just a cortex, that's just an oxidised, eroded outer surface. When you strike it hard with another stone and it breaks in half, like an egg, you're suddenly confronted with the flint. And the flint is like glass, or it's like toffee, it's like solid toffee that you hit with a hammer, it's got this beautiful glassy uh, texture and look, it's quite, it's like a precious stone, 
it's quite captivating. I mean, it, it, apart from the fact that it's very useful and you can make a sharp edge with it, it is in and of itself beautiful. And sometimes it's different colours. You know, you get greens and dark browns and blacks and, you know, you get different variations in it. It's quite a beautiful substance. But what we do know about it is that millions and millions of years ago, back into the geological era, uh, when long before there were human beings or, or mammals of any kind, the, the oceans of the world were filled with creatures. And, and some of them had for their, for their bodies, uh, they had structures made of silica. And other little creatures in the sea had, had bodies made of uh, calcium. Now, when all those creatures lived and died, their, their calcium and their silica would, would, would return to the sea. In, in a microscopic level, just like a, a dusting through the water, you know, making it kind of opaque. And then over the period of time, the calcium would settle to the bottom of the ocean in unimaginable quantities. And then by the processes of pressure and time, the geological processes, the calcium was turned into chalk. And you get beds of chalk hundreds of metres thick. And over time, tectonic events happen. Sometimes those beds of chalk get pushed up. And that's what you've got at the White Cliffs of Dover. That's chalk that was once upon a time deep underwater, has by different geological processes been pushed above, and it's now above the surface and being eroded. Now... When that chalk was still underwater, deep beds of it, animals, other animals, burrow into the chalk because it's soft. They burrow in and they leave behind little chambers. And in some form that science doesn't fully understand, the silica, which had been in the water from other animals, it came together and coagulated into, into a, 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 a material with like the consistency of cough syrup, some sort of thick gel, and that gel found its way into the hollows and little chambers left by the burrowing animals in the chalk. And when yet more time goes past and pressure is applied by the build-up of material above, that gel solidifies into flint. So that's why you get chalk, and then within the chalk you get these irregular-shaped nodules, as they're called. It's the perfect word, these nodules of flint. So, first of all, the, the, the Neolithic people and the hunters before them had identified flint on the surface. You know, they'd be, pe or they'd be walking on a beach and they would find a pebble and sure enough it would be flint. They would use it. But the more kind of imaginative and scientific amongst them would have thought, well, it's coming from somewhere. What's the source of this? And would maybe have noticed uh, in the bedrock a piece of flint there, still, still fastened into the bedrock. And they would think, right, we might have to burrow. We might have to burrow into the rock to get to get at more of this stuff. Unfortunately, in a place like, you know, in Grimes Graves or else, it's chalk and you can burrow into it using stone tools or antler picks. It's soft enough. You've still got to work hard, but you can dig into it and that's what you've got. So the, those farmers were clever enough and by a process of observation and experiment, they had realised if we get if we dig down into this white chalk, we'll hit the flint. And at Grimes Graves, they were encountering not just pebbles of it, but underground great floors of it. If, if you imagine it appearing like, like, like toffee in a, in a sponge, you, you get down through the soft sponge and then suddenly you hit this glassy layer, like, like a thousand gallons of spilt toffee that's gone hard. And it's under the ground and they can smash it out and put it back up to the surface. And then they would begin the process of making it. So, you know, these, the, it's important to remember that those, those first people, the hunters and the farmers, they had geological knowledge. 
They had studied stone. They had, they, had, they had looked at the world around them in need of raw materials and they had tried everything. What can we use the chalk for? What can we use the granite for? What can we use the flint for? There are all, they had realised that the, the, the rock of the world was all sorts of different kinds and that by a process of elimination and experimentation they had realised, well, we can make damn good sharp blades from this stuff. This is important. And so they went looking for it, prospecting for it like gold miners in the Yukon or in California. They went looking for flint. And at a place like Grimes Graves, boof, there's a flint rush. We can, we can get it really good flint here. And what they've left behind are, are, the, are the marks of that very careful and thoughtful exploitation of that priceless resource. have we been using flint? Hundreds of thousands of years. There's been a, there's, there have been versions of, of humankind of one sort or another for, for three or four million years that we know about, at least, uh, starting out first of all in Africa uh, with Australopithecus, the southern ape, and then over unimaginably long periods of time, evolution produced other variations, uh, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo Neanderthal, the Neanderthal people, and then eventually us. And all of those people, including us, exploited flint and other materials like flint. Obsidian is a volcanic glass. It's, it's a, another, it, this is a material that forms in the hearts of volcanoes. Chert is another uh, chalcedonic uh, silicate material that you, can, that you can work into a sharp edge. Uh, and all versions of humankind have realised that you could put an edge on this, make something sharp that will cut animal skin or it will cut wood. Everything, every version of humankind has understood the potential of flint. We still use it. Uh, for the longest time it was used uh, in muskets, you know, the muskets that came before rifles. Uh, the spark that you need to ignite the black powder that then fires the, the musket ball well, for the, up until the modern era, that was achieved by a piece of flint striking on steel to create the spark. Because when, when you strike flint on steel, you get a spark. You know, so we've, we've continued to see the use of flint as a material right up into the modern era. And you get it on houses, especially here in Norfolk, don't you? You definitely, you can t sometimes if you were taken blindfolded uh, into into different parts of the of the of the landscape of Britain, if you look at the, the at the fabric of houses, sometimes you can work out where you must be. And there is a building style in in the chalklands where in amongst the brick, you'll see flint nodules incorporated, sometimes with the white outer cortex, and sometimes cut with a you know smash to give a straight edge. And you can see, and so if you were, if they took your blindfold off and showed you a cottage that was made of flint, you'd think, oh well, I, I may well be in Norfolk, or Suffolk, or, or one of these counties where there is access to this material. So, yeah, it's still, it's still very much a, a resource that people identify and use. But it's, it's also heart-stoppingly beautiful. The another of the reasons why I'm fascinated uh, by the by the Stone Age is that people had reached such a pitch of, of exploiting that material. You know, when you see the arrowheads and the, and the knives, the blades, the spearheads, the things that were being made by carefully pressure flaking this material, 
They're so beautiful. And so beautiful, in fact, that, uh, you know, even when there was the transition to metal, people were still echoing this. You would, you'll sometimes see the look of a stone tool cast in metal. Ah, really? And vice, and vice versa, because there was a long transition period where people were still would have been making use of both. It's not as though metal would have come along and people just instantly discarded stone tools. They had become so uh, skillful at exploiting stone that it must have been hard to give it up. And they were, you know, they were still able to make beautiful things from from flint and uh, and obsidian and chert, you know, long after metal had come among them. So 5,000 years ago, flint was the cutting-edge technology everyone wanted. Yes, and for a long, long time before. As I say, for hundreds of thousands of years. Not just us, not just Homo sapiens, but our ancestors, our the other variations of humankind, they all made use of certain kinds of stone uh, to get to get a, a sharp uh, edge. There's a there's a, an iconic uh, artifact that that is produced by humans hundreds of thousands of years ago, and by other species, right back to Homo erectus, called a hand axe. And if you if you look at hand axes, pictures of them online, you'll see that they're they're quite large. They usually have a sort of a triangular form, and they and they they fit beautifully in the hand. You know the 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 hilt of it fits in your hand, and then you've got a sharp edge all around the outside. And it would have functioned as a kind of Swiss Army knife for the human species for hundreds of thousands of years. You know you you would have used it you know for chopping for fine work, for, for sharpening something, for, for cutting through animal hide, for butchering uh, animals that you had hunted. It would have been an all-purpose tool. And these these are, wherever they're found, wherever we find hand axes, we know we've found our own kind or our, our, or our distant relatives because they were made by people who had hands. And Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals... Homo heidelbergensis, Homo erectus, Homo antecessor, all of them had hands. And they, and they make things, and it can be quite a, a... I use the word magical quite a lot, I can't help it, but there can be a magic in, in, in having a, a hand axe that's been made not by another Homo sapiens, but something that was made by another species. And yet it still fits in your hand. That's a strange sensation. You know, it's something that's so old that it was made by another of the planet's experiments with what it means to be a bipedal, upright ape. It was made by another of them, but they were close enough to us that the tools they made for their hands fit in ours hundreds of thousands of years later. And you make that connection, you think, ah, this at least connects me to them because it fitted in his hand or her hand and now it fits in mine because... We're all brothers and sisters under the skin, you know, it's, it's powerful stuff. What's a Neolithic tool like in the flesh today? Because of the nature of the material, it doesn't change. You know, the, uh, the, sh- the shining, glassy appearance of a hand axe, it, it's still the same. It's instantly recognisable. And you hold up your hand kind of alas poor Yorick style. You know, you make that cradle. Well, a hand axe made by another species fits in our hands just as neat. 
as a hand in a glove. It's a strange experience of intimate connection with, with something that was a, a, alive and walking about and thinking and solving problems for itself hundreds of thousands of years ago. And it grounds graves. What were vouchsafed, what were given as a gift, is because we can empty out those, uh, those shafts again and, and follow the, the chambers, you can, you can have at least the sensation of, of breathing Neolithic air. Of course, it, of course it's an illusion, but when you climb down the ladders into one of these mines, the, the air hangs heavy. You know, there's no wind down there, it's dead still. And it's that bit slightly warmer in a, the way that any, you go any few metres underground and the, you know, the temperature just rises. And so you're in this warm, still environment and at Grimes Graves you look around and you see an antler pick that was used and then, right, we're finished here, boys. And then they, we'll make more of these when we get to the next mine. And they just set it aside, leaning against the wall of the chamber 4,000 years ago. And then they climbed back up and they filled the place with darkness. They backfilled it. And while everything that we think about as history has unfolded, you know, Egypt, Greece, the Romans, empires, kings, queens, world wars, everything has happened while that antler pick leant casually against the wall of that chamber. It's always been there. And then we come along, we empty out the shaft, and you see it again. Now that's, that's special, and that hopefully that permeates a lot of what this story of the British Isles is all about for me. In every instance, these places, these hundred, have stayed with me, are unforgettable to me, because I've visited them, and they've given me often in, in different ways, a, a sensation of being able to reach out and nearly touch. I love history. History is about the written word, obviously. It's about books and letters and diaries. And I love reading about history. But the child in me wants to go to places where something happened. A battlefield where a battle unfolded, or a, the ruins of a house where somebody lived, or a campfire where people cooked a meal, or Grimes' graves where they went after... A, a raw material that they could exploit. And you, you go there and you know without, without having to be told with absolute certainty what people were doing and when. You know, the places are still there. So what, what enthuses me, excites me about all of these places is the fact that in, in the case of everyone, you can go there and get as close as you can to being in, in physical contact. It's not just about reading and, and understanding. You can stand where people stood. You can crouch in one of these mines where people crouched. You can, you can have almost by your hand the tools that they used to create that shape. You know, they, they dug out the chamber. And you can get right... You can never touch. You can't get back to the Neolithic, not without a time machine. And you're a fool to think if you can. But you can get as close as humanly possible. You know what happened in that place. You know what people were doing and you can kind of stand in its aftermath and you can, you can just become completely uh, subsumed by, intoxicated by the atmosphere of these places. It's 
Flint all the same, or would certain types have been more desirable than others? It, it, it varies in quality. You get grades of, of purity and perfection. You get you get diamonds that are flawless, and you get but you get diamonds that are not so good. In the case of the Flint, they had become so um, uh, specialist in prospecting for Flint. They had realised because we see it in the when you when you go down through the the, the shaft. There are, there are layers of flint that they've obviously gone through because they were intent on getting, because they knew there was better to be had. And they're seeing thin bands of flint of, of a lower quality, and they, they may well have, maybe they took it out and used it for the tools that they then used deeper underground. But they knew that they were looking for a deeper, thicker layer of higher quality flint. Because it, in, in the case of Grimes Graves, they're always going through earlier, shallower deposits, and that they're always looking for this thick, treacly, toffee floor of flint, and that's the stuff they're after. What does a large-scale mining operation like this say about the time it was happening in? It's suggestive, I suppose, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a steadily rising population, because hunters have to limit their population. But in the case of farmers, they needed children because you need more people. Yeah, you can, for one thing, you can feed them because you've got surplus food that's reliable. And for another, the more backs you've got, the more strong arms you've got, the more fields you can clear. So, so that the, the, the exploitation of so, ma- of so much of a raw material to make tools suggests a lot of people who need tools because they need axes to clear away trees and other other vegetation that's covering the the ground so they need, to, they need to be able to dig out the roots it's massive hard labor once you've cut down the tree you've then got to burn out and dig out the roots get them away uh, you need when it comes to the harvest you need sickles and scythes for harvesting the, the the wheat and the and the barley and whatever so you need to make those tools you, you need to make tools to make tools uh, you know if you're going to make uh, antler picks Antler, deer antler, if you've never touched it or tried to work with it, is unbelievably tough. Even steel tools, even if you've got a sharp knife, good luck with that. You won't be able to cut into antler. It's so tough, so hard. Uh, and, and to exploit antler, they would probably have bound it with something like string or rope and then set fire to the string and the fire would, would burn and weaken it so you could snap off the, the tines that you needed to use. Uh, but they'd have to have developed other techniques. So you need tools to make the tools to do the mining. You know, see, so you've got you've got steps, you've got preparation. That you you can't just turn up at a, at a field and and start mining. You know, first first round up your deer because you're going to need antler. Uh, then you've got to already have a, a, a supply of uh, flint and other materials, granite, like hammers for smashing flint tools for digging, antler, you know, you've got to get that material organised. Then you use some of the flint tools to make the wood scaffolding that you're going to use to, to revet the shaft, pit props to hold up the roof of chambers. You've got to have all that ready so that when the miners start, they don't have to keep stopping. The people upstairs are making things and passing them down and the whole thing's got to go like a fair so that they can keep the whole the whole industry running. People are cooking. You know, people are building temporary accommodation. They're living there for weeks and months at a time. So elsewhere above ground, there's people building uh, shelters, uh, people arranging for cooking, people hunting. You've got a whole community who are servicing the specialists who are the miners. 
And then they bring the material up and then you've got other specialists and they rough out, you know, the rough outline of an axe, the rough outline of a blade. And those roughs get exported. They get sent away and they'll be finished at the point of destiny. When they arrive, someone will put the finishing touches on it. They'll, they'll grind the axe till it's perfect and they'll put the finishing edge on the blade. So there's many, many um, elements and stages in this process. But it's all people thinking, problem solving. What do we need? Where are we going to get it? I need wood, I need flint, I need antler, I need fire. All these things, get them, get them for me, get them now. So that we can, you know, we've only, we've only got so many t- weeks before we have to go and harvest the fields. So let's get this done. All of, all of the, a place that grimes graves, it, it, it radiates with the energy of these people. You know, it's people, come on, let's get this done. When you first saw this Neolithic mine, what was the immediate impression it gave you? It's truly bizarre. There isn't, there isn't anywhere else in Britain that, on the scale that looks like Grimes Graves, uh, because it's it's like a, I mean it's it's square miles, it's fields, it stretches in all directions, and what you're looking at are pock marks, craters, oh, craters, I mean big, 30, 40 feet across. You know, and they're, they're still, you know, five, six, seven feet deep. They're all grassed over now. Obviously, grass has grown over it all. But it's a lunar landscape. It looks like craters. It looks like the landscape of the Little Prince, you know, the Antoine de Saint-Exupéry children's story about the wee boy that lives on the moon. Well, it's that, it's that kind of, that's what it looks like. It's just one crater after another disappearing off into the distance. How do magical places like this, that are so old, manage to survive? It's almost as though it's by accident, really. Certain glimpses have just survived. You know, it's like there was a book, a huge, big, thick book that was the Neolithic. You know, thousands of pages long, full of detail. Yeah. And by, only by luck, we found a few pages scattered, windblown. You get little glimpses of what was once that people were working at Grimes Graves for a thousand years a thousand years summer after summer they were going back to Grimes Graves to get flint a thousand years, that's half the lifespan of Christianity it's a huge depth of time that people were going there and making use of that raw material Watching smoke rise up into the sky from huge pyres used to burn their dead. Carving totemic stone axe heads from the last part of earth the funeral smoke touched on its way up. In a landscape that inspires the mind and encourages deep thoughts. Our Neolithic ancestors seem to have invented for themselves nothing less than the concept of heaven itself. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To ensure you get each new episode of this podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe. You can follow in my footsteps 
as my journey unfolds across these aisles of ours by going to my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter, and seeing the places I've chosen. I'd also love to know about the history that inspires you. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. The music is by Malcolm Goldie. Additional research was carried out by Oscar, Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.